Welcome to Talks with Trav with your host, Travis Diamond. I'm very excited for today's episode. As many of you know, I credit the use of psychedelics to helping me overcome a lot of dark times in my life. And I actually came across someone who is a professional in the realm of not just psychedelics, but a psychotherapist. I'm joined today by Dr. Ann Metz. She is, as I mentioned, a psychotherapist, a researcher and educator whose focuses on psychedelics. Her work focuses on utilizing the transformative power of psychedelics and non-ordinary states of consciousness for psychological and personal growth. Although she has a cap, which is a ketamine-assisted psychotherapy practice, she is particularly interested in helping people make the transition from recreational to intentional use of psychedelics. Dr. Metz, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, Trav, nice to meet you so much, and thanks so much for having me on here. It was, it was good chatting with you just a little bit before we started recording. And, you know, I, I told you how a little bit about my, my use with psychedelics, but I'm curious, what's your story? How did you get interested in the world of psychedelics? Sure. Uh, so when I was in college, like most college kids, I experimented with drugs and, uh, took mushrooms and had a nice experience. It wasn't anything that I necessarily uh, found so memorable or so magical that I wanted to do it again. Uh, and so I sort of forgot about them really until uh, 2019. And in 2019, I was working as a practicing psychotherapist. I was in grad school. And, you know, one of the things I was really bumping up and uh, bumping up against with a lot of my clients was just feeling like there wasn't a technology out there that could help enhance the therapeutic process. So we would often we would do a lot of work and it would be really hard, but there would ultimately be this kind of barrier, this wall that people would hit. And it would just be really hard to go further than that. And uh, around about that time, Michael Pollan's book, How to Change Your Mind came out. And I kind of read that book and it really opened my eyes to the really long, but somewhat secretive history of the use of psychedelics within psychotherapeutic circles. Um, and so that to me was just really exciting, you know, in addition to hearing about the history, starting to understand more about what the research was saying about how these, you know, these medicines, these substances could really lead to profound lasting change that wasn't just symptom reduction, you know, it was actually healing the wounds that we carry with us and really alleviating some of the suffering that my clients were having that uh, we were really struggling to address. So that was how um, I got interested in it. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. So, so you came from a perspective of this is a, something that's, well, it's rather fascinating, but it's also something that I could use in my practice to help my, help my patients heal and recover and, and not just be a band-aid, but be an actual resolution to the issues they're facing. Yeah, I mean, I think that was what was so compelling about the research studies, um, you know, that are included in that book and that have subsequently come out, you know, that it is people have one or two experiences with um, psilocybin or with MDMA, and suddenly they no longer meet criteria for a lot of the really difficult to treat mental health conditions that, um, you know, a lot of people struggle with in the country. So uh, I hope, I think I was hopeful that one day it would be something I would be able to use. But of course, back in 2019, it was very much, you know, limited to small research studies in universities. And so I kind of thought, well, hmm, okay, I can't use this with my clients. Maybe I can use it with me. Um, and so at that point, 
I had uh, experience with psilocybin and uh, it was a really powerful, impactful experience. Uh, and I had this really illuminating and exciting message that came to me, you know, that we talk about, you know, listen to what the medicine has to say or your inner healer. And what my inner healer wanted me to know was that, uh, you know, that I could make a change in my life, that I didn't just have to wait for circumstances to align or for the right partner to pick me or for the perfect job to come along and for me to be selected to it. I really had a sense of autonomy in my own life. Um, and, you know, even though I was an adult woman with a career, this was a really eye-opening um, insight to have. Um, and I wasn't sure what it meant. And so I worked with a therapist for probably nine months, just trying to go back and forth and recalling what happened and what the lead up was and trying to figure out what that message meant for me in my life. Um, and, you know, eventually I was able to really implement it. And, you know, I'm living a radically different life than I was living in 2019. And I really think it all was, it all goes back to that experience that I had. That, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. That's, that's one of the things that I find so intriguing about psychedelics is it's almost as if they bring from within stuff that's already there. Like you had mentioned your inner healer. Mm -hmm. um, and to share a little bit about my, some of my experiences with psychedelics, um, when I was, you know, similar to you, when I was younger, I, I did what kids do. Well, I shouldn't say kids. I did what people out of high school and college age kids do. Um, and you know, I experienced the psilocybin, I, you know, ventured into LSD a little bit, MDMA, and I would got to a point where I'd done it a few times and, but it, it was like, I was doing it to party. I wasn't mm. doing it with any real intent behind it. And then one day I'd been like two years since I'd done it. I'm, always supported the use of it when done properly, especially for therapy purposes. I'm no professional, obviously, but I understand because I experienced the benefits of it. And a friend of mine was like, Hey, you know, I have, I have some psilocybin mushrooms. Do you want any? I'm like, dude, it's been so long. You know what? I think it would be good for me to, to take some and just, you know, try to make use of it and like actually take note of what I'm, what I'm experiencing. And so I got, got some, um, I took them and I just ate them straight. I didn't make tea or anything. And I had a notebook and anytime thoughts would come to me, I'd write them down. And mm -hmm. I ended up filling this little spiral notebook, just slap full of just absolute chaos, you know? Um, and then had a great time, felt really good. A lot of the depression and anxiety I was dealing with kind of dissipated for a long period of time. And then fast forward, like two years I'm moving. I, then I move in with my now wife um, and I'm going through a box of my old stuff and I find that notebook and I was mm. like, Hey, I wrote in this, this, this is the notebook I used to track all of my experience when I had that trip and I'm flipping through it. And I was like, Oh, so I, I saw what I was trying to say, but you know, in that state, I wasn't really coherent in some, some cases, cause I took probably far more than you, you would recommend, I would imagine. Um, but on one page, I just found this one, one statement. It said, follow your inner voice. It all comes from within. And it was just circled like a hundred times. Wow. And yeah. it's funny because at that time I was starting a professional and personal coaching company mm. and I was trying to find the, the niche, if you will. And I settled before I opened this, I settled on helping people find their inner voice. Mm. And I named my coaching company, 
ab intra way, which is from within in Latin. Wow. Yeah. I had no idea that it's planted those seeds in my head many Mm. years ago. And I've kind of lived my life through that going forward. So I can definitely speak to the testament of just how impactful psilocybin can be or psychedelics in general can be for your benefit, if you will. Mm. Now, were you going to say something? I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, I think what I love about that story um, is just this idea that, um, you know, and this is one of the reasons I think it's really amazing and a very different way of working um, is that it's helping to clear away maybe what gets what blocks us from being able to hear that inner voice. And they allow us to, you know, turn up the volume a little bit on, on what we know intuitively and, you know, what the highest self inside of us um, believes to be true. Uh, And it's so exciting, I think. And so magical to be able to have a connection to that and to be able to sort of hear that. And I think once you hear it, you can't stop hearing it, you know, and sometimes it's louder and sometimes it's quieter, but it never really leaves you. I think you're spot on. Absolutely. Um, It was looking back on it. That was a huge shift in my life. Mm -hmm. I didn't connect the dots then, but after that, I started making changes to pursue true happiness, that inner, Mm -hmm. that inner guide that was telling me, Hey, you might have this job where you're making good money and you've got the title and you get to wear the suit and tie to work, but dude, you're miserable. Mm -hmm. I started listening to that voice and I moved to a different city my my she was my girlfriend at the time i got engaged to her a month into living in the new city a place where we didn't know anyone other than each other um shortly after that i left my job that i was working at and pursued my own career and some of the most pivotal changes that i've made in my life for benefit were as a result of me opening up or turning up that inner voice if you will mm. um now i'm curious for you i know you obviously you're very well versed in like the research side of things and like the professional side of the the therapeutic benefits. Um, Are you familiar with maps and Rick Dobbin? Oh yeah. Um, You know, I think that uh, what maps has been doing is just uh, really, really exciting. I, over the summer took their um, MDMA therapy education program, um, which is sort of geared towards clinicians. I mean, they're very careful about not saying that this is the training program that you will need to have to become an MDMA therapist, because obviously it's not a treatment for anything right now. Um, But yeah, I mean, I'm really enthusiastic about what MAPS is doing uh, and just cannot believe that we are as close as we are to you know, um, potential FDA approval for PTSD for using MDMA. So, uh, yeah. What do yeah. you know? What do you know about Rick and maps? What are your thoughts? on um, that? I similar. I would echo your, your sentiment there. Um, I am a huge fan. Um, I have again, not the professional experience, but I have some friends that were, that are prior military, um, mm. suffering really bad from PTSD, uh, drinking heavy, and they've turned to, microdosing psilocybin and microdosing MDMA. Um, and they don't have the effects anymore. You know, right. I obviously can't make any claims about its, its medicinal usage or anything like that. And I'm certainly not trying to, but mm-hmm. from what I've seen, one of my best friends, um, you know, he went from being a raging alcoholic who was suicidal, very depressed, you know, mm-hmm. on, on the verge of ending his life multiple times to, pretty darn happy and not really experiencing the, you know, the consequences of going to war, if you will. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited to see that. I actually, 
before I got into a relationship with my wife, I was looking into maps to see if I could work with them. Cause I was, I was single, didn't have any ties, no obligations anywhere. I was mm. going to move to the, I live in Florida. So I was going to move mm-hmm. to the other side of the country and go try to uh, work with them. But I, I didn't quite have the educational background they wanted. So um, didn't really pan out, but I'm a huge supporter. Um, anytime I see that he's on a podcast, I listen mm. to it because I, I learn something new every time. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think it's very valuable, but um, I'm, I'm curious for you with, with your practice, what are some of the biggest results that you've seen from patients from prior to taking psychedelics to after? Yeah. Well, I think, um, I think the biggest thing, if I were to talk about it generally is, of course, is, is a perspective shift um, that so often in life we get caught in these repetitive ways of thinking about things and we have these very fixed narratives about ourselves or about other people or, or about things that have happened to us. Um, and, and psychedelic experiences can just be incredibly impactful and particularly ketamine because it allows us to have this moment where within the container of the safe space and under the sort of influence of, of ketamine, people can really change how they see things. And so, um, you know, a lot of clients I have, have had these stories about themselves of things that had happened to them in childhood that they somehow thought was their fault, that they had said, done something that had prompted it. And, um, you know, I think that the experiences that they have with ketamine and talking through it, you know, they're really able to sort of realize, oh my gosh, this wasn't something that I called to myself or I brought on myself. You know, it was just me uh, and I was in the wrong place and I was with an unsafe adult. And so I think that some of the sort of shifting in the way we see ourselves, um, you know, within our own stories can lead to some of the more impactful changes. Um, So I would say that those are the big changes. And then You know, I think people, you know, I always discourage people from making big life decisions immediately after a ketamine session, you know, don't quit your job, don't, you know, break up, end your relationship. But I also think that, um, you know, those things can be really important too, Um, you know, that sometimes the big changes really need to happen and that the symptoms we're experiencing, whether the depression or their anxiety or um, certainly PTSD, you know, they're an expression of something not being right in your environment and in your world and whatever we can get that um, helps us to believe that we can make those changes, that we can shift things, um, I think can go a long way towards people really um, relieving their own suffering. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, And I'm glad that you've, you've been able to help people have that experience and, and I'm curious because you kind of touched on a couple of different things. You, you first, you said perspective, and then you talked about depression, anxiety, things of that nature, which kind of in, in a roundabout way, it, you have those because of, a, of, of a perspective, if you will. Mm. So mm-hmm. I'm curious, um, you're, you're the professional here. And when I tell people that psychedelics can help heal their depression, anxiety, or even, even addiction, mm. um, they're like, okay, Travis. Yeah, sure. Um, but from a professional standpoint, what, how, how do psychedelics help with things like depression, anxiety, or even addiction? Well, if I might take a very unclinical perspective on this, um, (laughs) and this is really what I believe, um, and it's not probably, 
the neurobiological explanation that people uh, maybe would anticipate I would have, but I honestly think that they, you know, produce a, the psychedelics produce spiritual experiences uh, and that we suddenly have a sense of feeling loved, of feeling connected, of transcendence, of, of being, you know, part of something that's bigger than who we are. Um, and I think that so much of depression, anxiety, um, other forms of suffering in the world are really rooted in this sense of alienation from yourself, from um, others and from, you know, often the natural world. And so I think, um, I think that if I were to pinpoint what I think is the healing property, I think it's that, I think it's the connection to, um, something greater than yourself that ultimately heals. If I'm honest, I was not expecting that answer, but I'm so <laughs> thankful that you, you gave it. Um, mm. I think that is a beautiful answer. And I, as some, again, I can only speak from my personal experience, but that is exactly what I felt. And, and even, even when I was taking psychedelics to have a good time versus to heal, mm -hmm. I felt a level of connectedness that I didn't have. Like mm -hmm. I'll share something with you that some people that are close to me know, but most people don't know this about me. Mm -hmm. Um, I started smoking marijuana when I was 13 years old. And then mm. I smoked it almost every day until a few few months ago, honestly. Mm -hmm. um, and when I first started smoking it, it was because I was like, you know, my brother's doing it. It's, it's the cool thing to do. And, and then I found myself not really enjoying life and I wanted to be numb, mm. you know. Yeah. And then it got to like where everyone does it. And I just surrounded myself with those people. And even when I was sitting in a smoking circle with everyone, I still felt isolated. Mm -hmm. But when I started taking uh, mushrooms, I started hanging out with people that I did not know at all because I felt connected to them. Like we would we would take mushrooms together and just go out to the beach and just enjoy the, the beautiful waves as they crash mm -hmm. on the ocean or whatever, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was one of the first times in my life that I truly felt connected. I, I can't say I felt connected to them mm -hmm. as much as the energy. So to mm -hmm. that, that higher level, you know, like there's a lot of different views on why we're here, what the meaning of life is and, and things like that. And one of them is like the one stream of consciousness. And I think mm -hmm. we live in such an individualistic society that we can't connect to that, mm -hmm. but something like psychedelics allows you to open that door that's been welded shut your entire life yeah. and reconnect to that. So I, you know, thank you for sharing that. Cause I've, I've not made those connections, but as you're talking, I'm thinking in my head, the experiences that I've had. And I'm like, you know what, that actually makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I think it does too. And I think it also helps us to distinguish between uh, when use of psychedelics or any drug really is problematic and when it can be helpful, you know, and I think that, um, for so many people who are really struggling with substance use disorders or, um, problematic use, you know, it's, it's a way of evading and avoiding yourself and what, who you are inside on the deepest level. And also I think withdrawing from other people and, and what I think about, um, you know, psychedelics and what's difficult about them is, of course, that you have to really confront 
what's happening in your inner world and, you know, look at the shadow parts of yourself and also, um, you know, try to really connect with other people. And I think that, um, you know, I think that that's one of the things that's really wonderful about it. And, and one of the reasons I think having intentional use around it, um, isn't as, you know, I would hope wouldn't lead us down the same path as, you know, the opioid crisis. You know, I think that that's often something that people bring up as a, a cautionary tale. And I for sure think there's a reason to be cautious about it. But I also think, um, you know, the way that we're going about it and our intentional use and our seeking of connection is um, what I think will keep us from sliding into that again. Yeah. So, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. You, you've, uh, you mentioned, uh, intentional use. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I thought I was being pretty intentional when I was taking a couple of grams of mushrooms with friends, Mm -hmm. but I realized the most intentional use that I've ever had of psychedelics was when I would microdose. Mm -hmm. So how does one go from thinking that using it period is intentional to actually having true intentional use? Is it like a, a perspective where, Hey, I'm doing this because I want to heal or is it, you know, where you're taking it in a controlled environment? Uh, What are your thoughts on that? I think there's probably a continuum of it. And, um, you know, I think that obviously the set and setting of the way it's you, the way I practice my practice, I really have obviously an agenda where I really am like, well, the best thing you can do is not be hanging out with people. You can be in a quiet, controlled place where you feel safe. You can be listening to music. You can have your eye mask on and you can just be going inside. Um, And on top of that, having lots of preparation and Mm -hmm. thinking through in advance about what your intention is, about what you're hoping to learn from it. Um, You know, talking through, you know, what challenging feelings or challenging memories might emerge and just sort of helping yourself um, be prepared to approach those things rather than maybe walk away from them or disengage or distract yourself. Um, so I would say for me, that's really kind of like intentional use number, like level 10. And then I think, you know, intentional somewhere in the middle of there is, um, you know, people who, uh, you know, maybe want to take some with their partner for a special day, um, you know, or kind of work things out or, um, you know, and then, you know, want to go out in nature and, and use it in nature as well, too. I just think that there is a range of doing of um, ways it can happen. And as long as we're being sort of thoughtful about how we're using it and we're not just trying to have a good time, then I think that, you know, you're on the way to intentional use. Not that it can't be fun still. Like, I think sure. that's the important part too. And probably something we don't talk enough about in the kind of clinical literature is just the sort of euphoric, pleasurable parts of, of psychedelics, because that's really, I think a piece of it, you know? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I agree. I think that's one of the reasons. And again, I'm going to say this a couple of times throughout this. I'm not the professional here. I'm only speaking from personal experience. But I believe that when, when I would like microdose some mm-hmm. psilocybin, just, you know, 0.2 or what have mm-hmm. you, that's, those are the times where I feel completely free. Mm-hmm. Like I'm, I'm very hard on myself and I'm very mm-hmm. rigid about the way I live my life. Mm-hmm. So when, when I would microdose, I would just, I don't want to say be carefree, but I would just feel free. I would feel good. And it's very few things compare again, from my perspective to having a microdose and being in nature, being mm. on a trail, being able to sit in some grass or 
here and watch the waves crash on the beach, whatever it may be. That's, I feel like it, it gives you an extra level of connection to nature. Um, yeah. but I'm curious, uh, what do you, do you think in your, your opinion, like micro dosing versus taking a heavier dose? Is it dependent upon what you're trying to accomplish? Like what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, you know, I, you know, I think the jury is still kind of, you know, the jury's not actually, I'm getting this phrase wrong. I'm not sure that the research for microdosing is that strong. I mean, the studies okay. that have kind of come back have sort of said, it's probably doing something, but it could just be placebo, which is not to say that placebo isn't anything. Sure. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, so that's kind of a piece of my hesitancy around microdosing. Um, you know, the other piece around that is that, you know, anything that you're psychedelics often have uh, an increased level of serotonin in the brain. And there have been some uh, studies to suggest that repeated stimulation of serotonin can lead to heart trouble or serotonin syndrome. And so I think that, you know, there are some reasons to not take them consistently all of the time. And I think a lot of the protocols that are out there encourage you to, you know, take a day or two off each week, but you're taking it pretty consistently. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not sure that that's really does. I'm not sure that that is without some potential harms or side effects. Um, and I also feel like there, you know, the, the therapeutic model that I really like, um, you know, and I think this is the sort of difference between somebody who's, uh, you know, doing this on their own and using it in an intentional way and the way I sort of feel like it is, which is connecting to this uh, element of, of being a healer in the community uh, is that really it's the, even a low dose, I think is fine. A low to medium dose um, can be much more, I think, impactful over the long term and maybe have a more lasting effect. Um, but I know people really like microdosing. And so I know I'm in the minority on that where I'm just kind of like, eh, I don't know about that. <laughs> so I, I wonder if, if people, well, I guess when you say people, you're probably referring to other professionals, but my brain went to the people I know, because mm -hmm. a lot of, a lot of people that I know that do deal with psychedelics, they prefer microdosing as well. And I always kind of ingest say, well, you're just saying that because you get to take it more. That, that's, <laughs> that's why, you know, you're, you're getting it every four or five times a week versus once a month, you know? Yeah. Um, I, I try to annually have a really good spiritual journey with psychedelics. I'll take I don't know what, how, how would we define low to medium dose? So I would say, um, and I guess we'll just talk about psilocybin. Um, okay. I would say sort of low to medium would be somewhere between two to four grams of, okay. uh, of psilocybin five being like the hero dose. That, that um, was my next question. If you're familiar with the term of the hero's dose. Yeah. And, you know, I think that every sort of bit above three, you really increase your risk of having what we would think of as, as an adverse experience. Um, you know, I don't think that having a, a bad experience is necessarily a bad thing. Like sometimes we need to have an encounter with that. Um, but sometimes, uh, so like psychedelic experiences can be traumatic for people. And I yeah. think that, uh, the closer you get to the hero's dose, the more risk you run of, of having one of those sorts of things. And so that's why I tend to sort of like, you know, the, the medium to low doses done things. Um, 
And I also think that uh, the other part of it is, is just a, a capacity to, to surrender. And I think that's easier when you're in an office with someone who's there to kind of watch the store that you trust, that you know is going yeah. to take care of of you and is there to sort of, um, you know, hold your hand if things get scary. So, um, you know, I think that that that's kind of the other piece of it too, that, you know, for what I, for what the work that I'm doing or will do, assuming that psilocybin becomes legalized, um, it'll be that kind of lower dose where you're still able sure. to talk and have a little bit of lucidity, um, but you're not, but you're still under the influence, you know, it's still working. Yeah, no, absolutely. That makes sense. I, I figured that somewhere around that three to 3.5 range would be considered a, a moderate dose. Um, and I know, you know, I've, I've gone over that, but I try not to, because to your point, it, it can be a bit much at times. Um, I wouldn't say that I've had any adverse effects or a bad trip, if you will. Um, I'm, and you, you kind of even touched on it a little bit when I asked a different question about being prepared, mm -hmm. thinking about what you may have to face. Um, I would imagine those are steps that you kind of suggest that your, your patients take prior to, to prevent a bad trip, right? Yeah, I think so. You know, and I really come at things, um, you know, from the harm, harm reduction lens. So, you know, if I have a client who is on their own, um, you know, taking uh, LSD or they're taking psilocybin or something, you know, I think my role is really to help them be prepared, even if I'm not a part of that treatment. Um, I think that that's just a really important function. And one of the ways I think that, um, you know, we can make things happen now. Uh, and I do think, you know, it's important to talk about that. And when you have a relationship with someone that's therapeutic, you know, a little bit more about their history. And so I can kind of sometimes anticipate things that might come up. Um, you know, an example of that maybe would be somebody who has um, a memory of something traumatic happening, but doesn't exactly remember the details. Maybe they've Dis dissociated or there were drugs or alcohol involved kind of at the time. Um, and so, you know, I usually say, don't be totally surprised if that scene comes back in your mind mm -hmm. and it comes back in a little bit more vivid detail, because I do think that that can happen. That it would be, um, I think negligent to negligent on my part to not mention that as a possibility. Sure. Sure. So. That, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and I would imagine a lot of the ways you avoid having a bad trip also tie into the ways you kind of increase the probability of having a good experience, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what are some other things that people could do to make the, make the most of their psychedelic experience? Well, I think, um, you know, making sure that you're really well resourced in your life. And when we talk about well resourced, recognizing that, you know, you have, uh, you know, a connection to nature, you have ways of, of coping with difficult feelings. Um, you have friends and family that are supportive of you that you can call when you have a bad day. And so I think about those as being sort of things that are environmental that can be really helpful. Um, just to make sure that people um, have those sorts of things. And then um, more specifically on the day, you know, I really like, I always am really thrilled when people bring to session, um, you know, photos of relatives or of ancestors or um, items or things from nature that are really meaningful, you know, that those can become kind of touchstones for um, our connection to 
um, you know, to, to things greater than us. And so I think that that can be really important. Um, you know, having a good, having a good playlist, having music, um, having a warm, cozy blanket, um, you know, being in an environment where you feel safe, um, that's familiar to you. I think these sorts of things can be really, really powerful. That makes a lot of sense. I, I've never considered the first part you said, having that being well-resourced, having the people you can call when you're having a bad day. So it's almost like, it's probably a good idea to make sure that you are in a, a fairly decent headspace or you have the ability to, if you're not in the best place to have people you can reach out to, like don't make the psychedelic experience your only option. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really smart. And, you know, sometimes people reach out to me and they'll say, you know, this really traumatic, terrible thing happened to me recently. And I'm just barely keeping my head above water. I really would like to do cap with you. And, you know, that's when I'm sort of like, you know, might now might not be the time to do it. Um, you know, that doesn't mean it couldn't be helpful down the road, but I just think that, um, being so destabilized, already and adding in a psychedelic, which can be additionally destabilizing can just be really, really hard on people. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. I know there's, it's kind of like, it's similar to the conversation around marijuana. The Mm. people that are pro want to make it seem like it's the greatest thing ever. And there's no cons to it. And then the people that are against it are like, it'll kill you, you know? So (laughs) it's, it's good to hear that you're, you're honest and transparent, like, Hey, this might not be the most beneficial thing for you right now. And I think that's, that's what would set the professional apart from the local guy that you can get your stuff from. I'm sure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and I mean, I have to admit it's going to be interesting over the next couple of years, just in terms of taking these protocols and these procedures from really small scale, highly controlled, highly, invested research studies, um, and, you know, making it a mass market mental health treatment. Um, I just think it's going to be complicated. Lots of things will probably go wrong. Um, and we have to just sort of be prepared about that and they're not going to help everybody. I mean, that's the other thing too, is just, uh, really talking to people early about what their expectations are and having them be realistic about it, that taking, you know, a couple of cap sessions, will not be a silver bullet, you know, in your life. It will not suddenly make everything uh, that's been hard and difficult to do suddenly easy and, and fixed. So I think that's another important piece is just helping people to recognize that um, it isn't even the experience or the medicine it's, it's, it's the integration process. It's the process of taking what it is that you've learned in your case, this idea that, you know, listening to your inner voice, uh, and being able to apply it in all of those different ways. I think that's a, such a great example of um, the best use of psychedelics yeah. is not just letting it be this big experience, but figuring out what that means for your love life and for your professional life and for where you live. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I know we as a society, we want a quick fix. We want that 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 one magic pill that we can take to cure all of our life's problems. But unfortunately that's just not kind of not how life works. Um, so with you being a, a professional who helps people, you assist them during their journey. Um, would you kindly walk me through what one would expect if they're going to, or they're interested in having a psychedelic assisted psychotherapy? Sure. Yeah. Well, it certainly varies, um, you know, on how, 
I work, but I would say the most common way is that, um, you know, I live in, I live in Taos, New Mexico, which is an incredibly special place on earth. And it also happens to be next to a world-class ski resort. So I think uh, a lot of the ways people kind of connect with me and they like, oh, I'm going to Taos. I'm going to be doing some skiing. I'm going to be doing some fly fishing. I'm going to be doing some rafting. Maybe I would like to also do some spiritual work as well um, or do some psychedelic work. Uh, so often people will contact me and they'll be out of state and we'll have some preparation sessions in advance to talk about what it will be like. Um, and I will also connect them with a third party prescriber who will do all of the medical clearance and will prescribe the ketamine and then it will be mailed to folks houses and then they will come and bring it with them and then we'll have the dosing days here um, in person at my office here in Taos um, and you know that usually is about I would say three to four hour experience where you know we meet in person and we have a conversation and we talk about um, about, about intentions, um, about what to expect, about how long things are going to last. Um, and then we sort of open the container, if you will, and set the stage for this experience and people take the ketamine. And, um, I really encourage everyone to have an inward experience. So there isn't, mm. you know, the pressure like there would be if you're in therapy or in coaching where you, you gotta be talking to be making your, you know, making your hour worthwhile, you're there for a while. And, um, I always just encourage people to kind of continue to keep going in and keep going in and, um, you know, wear an eye mask and listen to music. And when they start to feel the effects start to wear off, you know, that's when we can begin to do a little bit of the integration process. Um, we talk a little bit about what they noticed or what they felt in their body. Um, and then I usually encourage everyone to have a really mellow evening after that and, uh, you know, do some journaling that day and then the next day. Um, and then we do integration. So we'll meet again either in person uh, or virtually um, and talk about what the experience was and start to figure out what that looks like. Uh, and if people are doing multiple doses, then we'll repeat that process. Um, so yeah, and then I also do, you know, for folks that I've worked with, um, in person, I do some remote work as well too. So when folks go back home, um, we have a way to continue to work on that, work on that process. Gotcha. That's awesome. That's, that's really incredible. It's, it sounds quite, there, there's a lot of steps, but it sounds like you're from the initial conversation to setting them up with the person, they're the group that can prescribe them, the professional that can prescribe them. It sounds like you're very hands-on and helping them along the journey of that. Um, but I'm curious, because I know with it being, well, I don't know for sure about, is ketamine federally legal? It is. Yes. Okay. So yeah, ketamine has been around since the 1970s. It was initially, um, you know, a battlefield um, analgesic to, you know, be a painkiller that would help people, um, you know, deal with really profound um, battlefield injuries. Uh, and the way that it works is it's it's not a classical psychedelic. It's what we would call a dissociative anesthetic. Uh, and it's used commonly in uh, anesthesia. So if you've ever had general anesthesia before, probably you've had ketamine somewhere in that cocktail of medications. Um, but I would say for the last 15 years and certainly heavily in the last five to seven, it's become um, more commonly used in an off-label way for treating mental health conditions. Uh, gotcha. And there are folks out there who treat everything from 
you know, addiction to tinnitus with ketamine. <laughs> gotcha. uh, so, yeah. Okay. Cause I was wondering, cause I know like with me living in Florida, Florida's pretty conservative on what they will and won't allow. So I was thinking like, if I was to, you know, connect with you, how, cause you said they get mailed to their house and then they meet mm-hmm. you with it. So I'm like thinking in my head, I'm like, okay, so I'd have to get this you know, am I going to get rated if I have it? Or am I going to get stopped at the airport? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as long as you have the prescription and they mail it out in little prescription bottles Mm -hmm. that have your name and the dose on it. I mean, it's never, I've never heard of any time ever of that ever being an issue. Um, Yeah. And so, and and certainly within, in Florida, there are lots of ketamine providers, lots of ketamine clinics. Um, And I would sort of say to anyone who's listening, if they're kind of wondering like, oh, well, how's this different than the local ketamine clinic where I can go get a shot or get an infusion? Um, You know, I think that, that that's really just about the ketamine experience and that cap, what I offer is very much about um, the integration and the preparation and also having, um, creating this healing container where you have someone that you trust who's sitting next to you and, um, you know, gives you a snack at the end of the experience. And if you get <laughs> cold, can pull a blanket on you. So th- there's a really lovely kind of nurturing mother, uh, aspect to it. That's very different than anything I learned in my grad school program, but I think is pretty powerful for people, um, to be able to feel really cared for and safe when they're in this vulnerable state. So. Awesome. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. I appreciate you sharing all that. Um, Curious. uh, We've talked a little bit about other psychedelics. Do you know of any timeline on any like medicalizing or legalizing MDMA or psilocybin even? Yeah. Well, I can talk a little generally about what I know. And this is always the conversation that, you know, I'm asking the people who know more than me. I am under the impression that MAPS, they just wrapped up their phase three clinical trials for MDMA. And I think they're prepared to do a um, drug application with the FDA. Uh, And my understanding is that they have done so much preliminary work and kind of getting this to um, this point that the FDA is kind of on board with what they're proposing. um, And they've crafted a risk management system and really controlled uh, circumstances for when this would be able to be used. Uh, And I think they're thinking next summer, it'll be potentially federally legalized for the treatment of PTSD. Yeah. I mean, I can't believe it. I mean, you know, it was just sort of when I got started doing this and started doing my training in 2020, I was like, oh, you know, maybe someday. And it has, you know, it's right around the corner. I think. Um, and then my understanding is that maybe psilocybin for depression um, is probably another year or two behind that. Um, I think that that's kind of where they are with the clinical trials. Okay. Um, and I will say this is the medical medical version where right. to be able to participate, you'll need to have um, a diagnosis. Diagnosis and to be prescribed. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and they'll have pretty you know, pretty limited diagnoses that they will be, that will be acceptable. So with ketamine, you know, if you have generalized anxiety disorder or, um, you know, low level depression or something like that, you probably would still be a candidate for, for ketamine use, but, uh, psilocybin and, 
uh, MDMA will be really specific. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, of course, is what's going on in Oregon and to some extent Colorado, which is what we would call community use, um, where the state has created an infrastructure where people are able to participate and take advantage of these treatments and they won't need to have any sort of medical diagnosis. You'll just need to go to a community licensed treatment center and work mm -hmm. with a community licensed facilitator. Gotcha. Um, and I think that's kind of how Oregon how Colorado is gonna is gonna be. It'll be a similar um situation. Obviously they've decriminalized a lot of mm -hmm. um we could have called them plant medicines and natural medicines there. Right. Um, and and Oregon this is already happening out there. So people are going for psilocybin therapy mm -hmm. as we speak. There's a long wait list if anyone is listening and wanting to do it. Um, but you know, it's definitely happening and it'll this centers will continue to grow. Absolutely. And I, I think that that shows the well, not necessarily the community use or recreational use in Oregon, but the the timeline for everything being approved by the FDA with maps, with the mm -hmm. MDMA and the psilocybin. I think it speaks to one, the validity of the actual usage of it, but two, I think it shows how we as a society are progressing and getting away from the, I, I don't want to say fear mongering, but there was definitely a smear campaign that took place during the the hippie movements of the sixties and everything. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm excited to see that because I was always fascinated by that time frame, that time era of history. Mm. And I never thought in my life that I would experience where I'm having a conversation with someone and we're talking about the time, the potential timeline of the medicalization of these substances. Um, but I am curious, are you familiar? I have two questions. So I'll ask the first one, then I'll go to the second one. Um, are you familiar with Ibogaine? I know a little bit about it. Um, you know, I, but only just kind of a research from sure. a research research perspective, and obviously, I think it's had pretty solid, um, pretty solid evidence base for treating addiction. Um, so, I also hear it lasts about fourteen hours. So, yeah, that's... it's it's a long haul for sure. <laughs> um, and I've never experienced it, but I've heard a lot of people talk about it. I've listened to a lot of podcasts. I've looked at the research on it, mm. um, and I'm I'm not a I don't have a PhD, so I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I thoroughly understood the research, mm. but what I can understand is the story that someone shares when they do experience it. So I've often wondered why something like that is not even remotely considered in the States, especially after the opioid and pandemic mm. epidemic that we've experienced, you know, but that's, that's a different conversation. I was just curious if you, you yeah, much about it. Well, I'm pretty sure that in Colorado that they're, you know, that they have that that's on the table for you really know, for treatment. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. And if nothing else, it's certainly um, going to be decriminalized for sort of social sharing purposes. Um, so I do think that, you know, like exactly what you said, that with the opioid epidemic and just the fact that we don't have really great treatment for addiction in the same way mm -hmm. we didn't have great we don't have great treatment for PTSD. I do think um I do think that that one is in the mix with the decrim nature movement. That's that's awesome. That makes me very happy because I've I've been 
like I've I've lost friends and loved ones to opioids, mm-hmm. um, both through like them dying from them directly and them basically losing control of their life. Yeah. So it it hits very close to home to know that there is a potential resolution for those problems and it's completely mm-hmm. ignored. So that makes me feel really good that that is what's on the table. Um, awesome. I appreciate you sharing that. Um, mm. The next question, kind of to go back to ketamine, uh, the first time I ever heard about ketamine or anything like that, it was quickly followed up with, it's a horse tranquilizer. Have you, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever heard heard that or any, oh, any yeah. validity to that? Yeah, I think actually, I mean, I think that's probably where it got started. Um, yeah, I mean, my grandfather was a large animal veterinarian. He's unfortunately deceased, but I would love to have a conversation ah. with him about horse tranquilizers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think that's originally where it started. But sure. I mean, I think a lot of medications, um, you know, a lot of medications we sort of find are helpful by mm-hmm. accident, you know, and the great example of that is of course, lithium, which is used to treat mood disorders. Uh, originally it was used for people trying to treat gout and they found that people who had lithium to treat their gout were a lot more mellow. And so then they started using lithium to treat mood disorders. So it's often an accident that we, we end up having the prescriptions that we have, which I sometimes uh, make this joke and I obviously respect psychiatrists, but sometimes it feels a little bit like they throw, they throw caca at the wall to see what (laughs) sticks, you know, it's really like, there's no science, there's no disease model for intervention. And so it makes it hard to figure out how to, how to work. Yeah. And, and there's a lot of medicines that are their original intent is not what it's used for today. A a very commonly known medication that most people are probably unaware of Viagra, Mm. for example, it was Mm. actually, it was developed originally to treat high blood pressure and chest. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Ironic. That's great. I did not know that. That is ironic. Yes. Well, you know, better living through chemistry, right? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, and apparently they found through their studies, that it had some alternate effects <laughs> and they're like, Hey guys, it was made by Pfizer. So of course they're a for-profit company. So they're like, Hey, don't throw it away. Let's just rebrand it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so I, I would love to know how many drugs or medicines are out there that are used for on daily basis by people for one thing, but they were made for something totally different. They just accidentally found out that it has this effect. That would be a very interesting article to read for sure. That would be, that would be. And there's so much off-label use of things anyway, you know, even if it's like not the original intent, you know, like ketamine's this great thing. It's like yeah. used for anesthesia and now we're using it to treat treatment resistant mm-hmm. depression and suicidality. So exactly. Um, yeah. So, so let me ask you this. If, if anyone's listening and they've never experienced psychedelics or maybe they did and they had a bad experience mm-hmm. um, and this conversation has made them say, Hey, maybe I should, you know, s- see about that again, but, mm-hmm. but maybe they're a little scared or hesitant. What, what would you say to kind of reassure them or to make them a little more comfortable in making that decision? I think I would encourage them to find um, a provider, either a coach or a counselor who is, um, you know, has a harm reduction lens or has some specialization in this sort of work. Um, Because I do think um, 
bad experiences are normal and they certainly happen to people. And I think, um, you know, being able to feel supported in that um, and also recognizing that even if you had a bad experience with something, that doesn't mean that you should never try it again, that there is, um, you know, that we sometimes have curiosities about things and that maybe if we did it under different circumstances, it would turn out a little bit differently. Uh, and then beyond that, I would just say, you know, if you're going to do this on your own and uh, you don't can't find a provider who does what I do, then I would say go low and go slow. Um, you know, that, that driving, jumping right back in and trying to heal a bad experience, uh, with a big hero's dose is unlikely to work. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. So, Good point. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I appreciate you explaining that as well. Cause I know I've had conversations with people because like I said, I, I support doing it the right way. I don't mm-hmm. think it's a good idea to just on a Friday night, randomly get them after you've been drinking all day and try to throw a few mushrooms back and see what happens. I don't really think that's a good idea. Um, but I do believe in the benefits of them. So I have these conversations from time, not too often, but more than most, I would imagine. Yeah. Um, I can't imagine a regular conversation psychedelics for, I mean, for you, obviously it is, but not for many. <laughs> um, that's why I was so excited for this. Cause I'm like, I get to talk to someone who's an actual professional in the subject. Awesome. Yeah. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, where was I going with that? I lost my train of thought. You were talking about uh, people who talk to you about having bad experiences. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I've always kind of been like, you know, if if you're hesitant, I might not suggest you do it because that might increase the probability of you having a bad experience. But then I kind of lighten the mood by saying, you know, but my wife's grandmother always suggests trying food three times before you decide you don't like it. <laughs> you know? That's very funny. That's um, a great one. That's a great one. I won't yeah. steal it because I don't know your wife's grandma. But, you know, <laughs> wish my grandma would clever like that. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Um, you just got to because this is it's a heavy topic, but it's yeah. it can also be lighthearted, you know, um, especially if someone's had a bad experience. I try to bring some humor there. But um, I'm curious, uh, to relate to trying it more than once. A friend of mine owns a float therapy spa. Mm. Um, have you ever experienced float therapy? I have. It's wonderful. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, the reason I brought that up is because he, uh, he explained that he always gives like a, a discounted price on the first time because he's like, it, it's kind of like sleeping in a hotel bed. The mm-hmm. first night you're there, it's awkward. It's not very comfortable. It's a little weird. You don't know what to expect. Mm-hmm. But then the next time you sleep, the next night you sleep like yeah. a baby. So that that when you said you know just because it didn't work out the first time, my brain went there. Um, yeah, no, I I love the the benefits of floating for sure. It's 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 funny because a lot of people who are pro floating are also pro psychedelic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have I mean, a lot of overlap. I mean, I think what's great about floating is that it makes you aware of like, oh man, all I am is my consciousness. You know, I'm just this like floating floating bag of skin, but like I am intentional and I'm thinking about myself being this floating bag of skin. And and that's kind of what happens with psychedelics, you know, Mm -hmm. that there are, these are these sort of non-normal states and that they're, they're pretty special. And I think they're pretty important to the human experience. Um, And, you know, there are other ways of doing it. You can do meditation, breath work, hypnosis, mm-hmm. um, if drugs are, if psychedelics are not the way you want to get into it, um, there are other options out there. 
Yeah, one one of the the best psychedelic experiences I had was through breathwork. Wow, was through breathing. Cool. Yeah, are you familiar with Wim Hof? Yeah, yeah. I um I did like eight rounds of the Wim Hof method, mm. and by round five, I was definitely not seeing things. The walls weren't breathing. I didn't see little <laughs> dragons flying around, but the the internal feeling that you get from certain psychedelics i was definitely experiencing and i was not in my i was definitely in an altered state of consciousness and then there's another one i can't remember what it's called um holotropic breath work maybe thank you that's it yep yeah uh yeah that one my wife uh she had an incredible experience doing that um that's that's more like do it for a long period of time. So mm-hmm. I, I don't have the willpower for all that, but she, uh, yeah, she had a great res- response from that. Um, and then um, what was the other one? Oh man. I don't remember. I don't remember. I'm drawing a blank. Um, what did you say bef- prior to that about the, you said breath work, meditation, and then hypnosis, hypnosis. Okay. No, I don't, I don't remember. There was another point I was going to make. There's something else I was going to say, but I don't, oh, actually just came back to me. So you were, you were sharing some of the experiences that you had, um, that your, your patients had had. And I, you know, I shared some of mine, but I'm curious, um, what, what are some of the more profound things, if you will, that psychedelics have taught you through your own experience or through the experience of the provider? Hmm. Hmm. I mean, I think, um, I think that they are spiritual lessons. They're lessons, um, you know, of, of, you know, of love and consciousness being the basic building block of life. You know, uh, I think that those are, those are sort of the big ones that have come through to me. Um, and also, you know, I think another one, you know, along the lines of love is that, uh, the experience of love is, is, is an active verb, you know, it's loving other people, mm-hmm. it's having love for others. And that's what gives us the experience of being loved. I mean, I think that uh, maybe in prior relationships, I've had this, ex- this expectation of wanting to kind of be, be adored and that, you know, I will feel loved in this way. And that it's really been through the act of loving other people um, that I myself have been able to feel loved in return. Yeah. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I think you're spot on, you know, when I, uh, a couple of years ago, I did this, I, I read it somewhere, heard it in a talk. I don't remember what it was, but they were talking about someone giving you a compliment mm-hmm. and I've always been incredibly uncomfortable receiving compliments. Mm-hmm. And I've also been incredibly uncomfortable giving compliments. <laughs> and huh. they were talking, they were saying, you know, someone is, probably uncomfortable giving you that compliment. And then when you compliment them back, they're Mm. like, ah, it's even more awkward. So just say, thank you. Mm -hmm. So what I started doing was somebody would compliment me and I'd be thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And I wouldn't say anything else. You know, I would just leave it at that. Yeah. And like, I would see them like feel better. And then I started feeling good. And then I got to a point where, which is, it's part of my character now. It's part of who I am now. But before I, it was f- way out of my comfort zone. I will unprovoked go up to someone and be like, hey, I love that shirt. Or hey, mm. dude, where do you get your haircut? That's awesome. You know, wh- whatever it may be, right? Um, so to tie into that, I think when you you said love is, you ha- is a verb, 
you have to give love and it makes it a lot easier to receive love. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to start by loving yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where psychedelics have played a huge role for me in helping me overcome my less than desirable beliefs about myself and perspectives mm-hmm. about myself. Um, you know, w- one of the things that I learned, I was, um, I was hanging out with some friends and we were all having a psychedelic experience and I'd always, because they, they all went to college, they have their college degrees and everything. And I didn't, I barely graduated high school. Granted, it mm. was due to poor decision-making, not intelligence, but mm. my college was never in my plans, never in my path. Right. Um, and I always perceived myself as l- lower than them on the intellectual mm. scale because they had degrees and I was sitting there and we we're having a conversation and almost back to back, each one of them that I was talking with, they're like, dude, you're so smart. Like how did, you know? And then I think because I was having that experience, I was able to internalize it and like mm. appreciate it. And then I started changing my perspective. Mm. And now I literally have a podcast where I share advice on how to improve your life. Oh. So it's like, <laughs> you know, now granted that was eight years ago that I had that experience and now, yeah. but you know, I was always very timid and very, um, I thought very low of myself, especially from an intelligence standpoint. I grew up mm. on a dirt road in the mm. southeast of the United States. So I'm like, I'm hillbilly, you know, I'm not mm. smart. But then I come to find out I'm actually, I, I have some intelligence. And I think me being, having that experience on psychedelics when that occurred allowed me to receive that love that they were giving me better and mm-hmm. in turn, you know, start loving myself a little bit more. That is so beautiful. And first of all, Trav, I have to say you're a really great podcast host. Thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, But you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because that was the elusive thing for me for so long was like, I'm supposed to love myself. Like what, what does that even mean? What are you talking about? And it was only through, you know, those experiences uh, in 2019, 2020, um, that I started to figure out how to do that. I mean, I recognize I can't tell your listeners how to do that. It's not like transferable wisdom, but I learned it for myself and I have never been the same. Um, and just the like level of compassion and, uh, nurturance and acceptance that I have, um, for myself, I, you know, you know, you can't go back on that. And it also makes it easier to love and accept and sort of see other people for who they are. So it's Mm -hmm. just been, you know, it's helped my clinical practice. It's helped my relationships. It's helped me. I mean, it's helped, it's really been a a very profound thing, you know, learning how to love yourself. So I'm glad that that's what um, comes to mind as one of the big lessons that you've learned from psychedelics. Yeah. I mean, it's for for me, like the loving of myself started with the self-talk. Mm-hmm. I would do something wrong and I'd be like, oh, you're so stupid. You're such an idiot, you know, and just be so hard on myself. Mm-hmm. And, you know, before I got in a relationship with my life, my wife, we were actually roommates for like six years. Hmm. Um, and, you know, friends, like we worked together, we were roommates, all that stuff. Um, yeah. and then we parted ways for like two years and then we reconnected. Mm-hmm. Um, and she would always grill me about being so hard on myself. Mm. and she would say things like, Travis, you can't talk to yourself like that. And then I'm like, what, what right. does it matter? She's like, well, you're going to believe it. And I'm wow. like, okay, thanks for, thanks for pointing out 
you know, making me feel, you know, like, I, yeah, you're right. I do believe it. Unfortunately, I didn't want to acknowledge that. But now that you put it in my face, I do have to accept that I think I'm an idiot, you know, yeah. just by example. So for me, it was fixing that self-talk and then getting comfortable being vulnerable with myself, mm-hmm. you know, and that's another thing psychedelics helped me with taking a gram of psilocybin and just sitting there and saying, all right, Travis, here's the topic we're going to talk about. And mm-hmm. I would, I would record like audio record myself having conversations. That's when I started That's using great. it as a tool instead of an mm-hmm. experience, mm-hmm. because I found I wasn't out of my mind to the point where I couldn't form coherent sentences, mm-hmm. but I was loose enough to where I was willing to be vulnerable with myself. And I had, you know, a lot of honest conversation with myself and that those things like brought me to tears. And, you know, I don't know how much experience you have where you've cried during a psychedelic experience, but almost everyone that I've had, I've cried at some point in it, you know, and that's another thing I, I used outside of my psychedelic experiences, I can Mm. count on two hands from 14 years old to I'm 31 now. No one hand, how many times I've cried. My gosh. And, And every one of the actually all, when my daughter was born, I watched her birth. I cried then. Other mm-hmm. than that, it involved death of a family member. Wow. I just reserved the tears. But, you know, like those psychedelic experiences really helped me be more vulnerable in that regard. Yeah. Do you think that that carries over into your life generally and your relationship with your daughter, your relationship with oh, your wife? 100%. I now, I will, my, my daughter will do something for the first time, something irrelevant. She will bring me something for the first time. And mm. it's like, oh, she, she, cause she's, 19 months now. So she's still at the developmenting stage, obviously. Um, but she'll like bring me a toy and she'll hand it to me and I'll play with the toys and she'll just sit there fascinated and I'll get choked up. The other day I watched her have her first interaction with two of her toys where she had a scene, an imaginary scene in her head. And my wife and I both sat there and cried. Mm. You know, it's, I, I'm so thankful that I've, unlock that side of me because like my dad growing up, he didn't, he was, he loved me and I knew that he loves me and I know that, mm-hmm. but he wasn't affectionate. He wasn't loving. He mm-hmm. loved me by providing structure and guidance and a roof and all of that stuff. But he didn't, it wasn't like a lot of, I love you's, yeah. you know? So yeah, I was very thankful that I had unlocked that aspect of my brain for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That you're able to sort of be the loving father that to yourself, that maybe you had always had wanted not to say that your father wasn't loving, but the, the, the expressive and the, you know, affectionate, maybe that, 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 that part has come out. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on with that. Um, so I I would actually ask you the same thing. How, how would I know you've touched on it a little bit, but how has your experience with psychedelics unlocked your mind to, you know, being able to give and receive that love and be more vulnerable in, in your life. Yeah. Well, I think, um, you know, I think it's, you know, it's really helped me to find peace with the parts of myself that I genuinely loathed for most of my life. Like, you know, I haven't always been a good person and I have done cruel things and, it was really hard for me to take responsibility for that and to hold myself accountable. It was just easier to be like, yeah, but this happened and, but this happened, but this happened. And I think um, being able to sort of move through that with the help of psychedelics to be able to sort of say and see like, 
oh, that's as much a part of who I am as these good things that I really like. And I can love that part equally um, as, as the good pieces. So I think that that's really been impactful and profound and has made me a less like, I think probably thorny person because I don't have all of this unprocessed shadowy stuff that, um, that kind of leaks out everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and I also just think, uh, it's given me so much compassion so much more compassion for how hard it is to be a human being. And, uh, you know, I sort of see that with my clients and, uh, I really feel love for them. And, uh, you know, it's not like language that I would share with students or share with maybe other counseling colleagues, but that's really truly what I feel. Um, and, you know, I feel that with um, people who have wronged me in the past as well, too, you know, that that some of the experiences I've had have really reflected on, um, mm. on moving past and forgiving people who have really, really harmed me and wronged me. Um, and so I just... Yeah, I, I like to say that going back to grad school is the thing, the single most important decision that I've ever made in my life, but that's probably not true. It's actually probably all of this, um, you know, yeah. I'm sure we wouldn't be having this conversation had that not happened. And yeah. I'm just grateful for that. And I really hope that over the coming years that I can provide experiences like that for people, because I do think that they can be so transformational um, and that you almost can't even imagine how, how good life can be um, when you open yourself up to your, to love, to one another, to um, the natural world, um, you know, into what's inside of you and to what you carry around. So. That's very beautifully stated. Absolutely. I, I completely agree with you. And I think the key to all of that, or at least, for me and seemingly for you and for many other people, or maybe not the key, but a significant factor in that has been psychedelics. Mm. Um, now to kind of have a little, a little more lighthearted conversation as we get ready to kind of wrap up and everything. Are you familiar with the immortality key? Yes, I am. I think that book is amazing. Right? Yeah. Yes. Now, I, I listened to a podcast he did um, recently I'm actually still listening to it. I listen to it when I run. So it's like a three hour podcast. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I've got one more hour of running to do to finish it. But Very it's, cool. I mean, mind blowing stuff. The thought that democracy, <laughs> literally democracy came from, you know, and then there's actually one of the things I didn't know until his interview, there was a how did he put, I guess a species, I can't remember what they were called, similar to humans. They existed a 15 to 20,000 years before humans, I guess, hmm. uh, as humans, as we know them today. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're, we're Homo erectus, right? Or is that the uh, Homo sapiens? Homo sapiens yeah. and then Homo erectus before that. And then there was another one before that. Yeah, that's right. So, okay. Yeah, I'll, I'll get it right eventually. So that group was actually the first that's they found these grave sites mm -hmm. where they seemingly intentionally buried their dead, which is not something any other species has done outside of the homo sapiens. Mm -hmm. So they were talking about how they think that maybe we, we kind of overlapped in some regard and they shared some of their beliefs on the afterlife with us. That's why mm -hmm. we do these things. And of course this is all hypothesis and theories and yeah. things like that. It's, next to impossible to prove sure but 
Yeah, I was just um, absolutely blown away by his interview and the way he's talking about the use of psychedelics at, you know, in creating modern history or modern society, essentially. Yeah, I just thought that book was mind blowing. And, you know, one of the, I think, legitimate critiques of psychedelics is that we're culturally appropriating um, these medicines and these ceremonies and these traditions from, um, you know, indigenous people in South America and in Central America and, you know, to some extent, North America. But I mean, that's absolutely true. But the West also had this too, you know, ancient Mm -hmm. Greeks, um, you know, that they had the, you know, the sacrament that was, you know, where you died before you died and that that became some of the kind of foundational um, pieces of, 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 you know, the Eucharist and of, um, and of communion. And I just think right. it's so amazing to think that like all cultures have had this relationship with, with fungus. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's just so incredible to, to, to think that and to recognize that and to, even though that history has obviously been lost since, um, you know, the library at Alexandria has been burned, but so cool that we're starting to know a little bit about yeah. it. And there's some hypotheses that, you know, connect us to our own, our own lineage and our own history and our own um, relationship to the mystical and the magical. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I'm, you know, I, I, I can see why people say it's like cultural appropriation. Um, but in the same breath, it's like, that's, it's a natural occurring plant or tree in the, for the sake of ayahuasca. Right. Mm. Um, I don't know how I, I understand because they use it in their cultural practices, but I think that is like a, to your point, a human experience. I think all humans have some type of even, Native Americans with the peace pipe, you know, Mm. the, or the opium dens, or even, I mean, nowadays, even with alcohol, that, that Mm -hmm. is our cultural in America, our cultural experience with a mind altering substance is Mm. there's a bar on every corner. There's a liquor store on every corner, you know? Um, But yeah, I find it fascinating that no matter how far back you look in history, that's one of the mutual occur or the common occurrences is the use of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Now that brings me to my next question. Are you familiar with Terrence McKenna? That is a familiar name. What did, what so, has he written? Um, he is the one who produced the stoned ape theory. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah, <laughs> I have heard yeah. that one. Yeah. The source <laughs> of language. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. Um, and you know, he's just someone who was like a pioneer in, you know, the use of mushrooms for a medicinal and for a unlocking your brain type of purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. his, his brother, he's passed away, but his brother, I believe his name is Dennis McKenna. Um, he's continuing the research and everything that his brother started. I guess they started it together, but Terrence was the the voice of it. Mm-hmm. Um, very, very soft-spoken man. Um, mm-hmm. he's, I've listened to some of his lectures and he's, I mean, you would not think someone who is ba- basically someone who's a tri- uh, that trips all the time on mushrooms would be <laughs> so because you have this. Oh, well, you're just you're a, a hippie. You know, you don't mm. know what you're talking about. But he was 
he would get into these debates with these scholars and he would make them look foolish. Hmm. And but he would do it from a place of love. He wouldn't be mean about it. He wouldn't be yeah. dirty and nasty. He would just say, yeah, no. So I would recommend looking looking him up a little bit. He had the stone ape theory is fascinating to me. I don't know that I believe it necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, but it's it's very interesting because that is one possibility of how we bridge that gap between where yeah. we are to where we are. So I mean, I don't have any other explanations for how we have language. I mean, yeah. you know, I have a dog and I point to, you know, anything that's not food and the dog looks at my finger, you know, and he's like, well, <laughs> why, why, why do I want that? Yeah, exactly. That's funny. That's funny. Well, and I think this is probably a good place for us to wrap up. I know we're getting close to the time. So um, do you want to tell everyone how they can learn more about you or get in contact with you if that's something they wish to do? Yeah, sure. I would love to hear from anyone and always happy to um, consult or if you're interested in treatment, feel free to check out my website. It is Anne with an E, uh, Metz, M-E-T-Z. So annmetz.com. Easy to find. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, Yeah. And again, I truly appreciate the conversation. It it was a great conversation for me because I got to learn a lot, but also I got to be more open and vulnerable about, about things that I've never really discussed on my podcast. So I appreciate that. Good. Well, I hope that your listeners uh, have a new layer of appreciation for who you are and what a great podcast host you are. Thank you again (laughs) for that. All right, guys. Um, That was Dr. Ann Metz. And um, like I said, like she said, if you want to connect with her, you can reach her at her website. I will put her link in the web episode description below. So you guys can just click a link, make it super convenient for you. Um, if you did find value in it or you have questions or, you know, want just want to share your thoughts on the episode, I'd love to hear from you. Leave a comment, leave a review, let us know what you truly thought. Remember, I do not want a review if it is not a sincere one. I don't care if it's a one-star review. The sincerity is what matters to me. With that being said, thank you all so much for your time. Until next time, y'all take care.